he brought me towards his vehicle and he just pulled me and grabbed me and pushed me into the back of his vehicle, which had some kind of bed in there. Hi guys, welcome to episode 10 of the True Crime Sisters podcast. We're now officially over halfway through our first season of the podcast, which I can't believe. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. It is. It feels like just yesterday we were both true crime podcasts obsessed and we thought to ourselves, maybe we can do that too. And here we are. Yeah. So as always, I'd like to invite you to follow us on social media. We've got Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Our links are in the description, as you know. I'm sure you're sick of hearing it. If you want to let us know what you think, make sure you leave us a review or send us an email. This week we are talking about the case of Peter Falconier, a British backpacker who went missing here in Australia back in 2001. This is quite a well-known case, more so than many of our other cases. It is very interesting and is set in a different part of Australia to the other cases we've covered. And Bill's actually travelled around Australia a couple of times and has been to many of the areas in the outback that we're talking about today. So you'll be able to paint a picture for us of these kind of areas. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've pretty much been um, to every spot that's mentioned in this case. So I can sort of, as I was um, learning about this case, which I've actually been pretty much following since it broke back in 2001 yeah I can sort of put a bit of a picture to the different places and it isn't it's it's terrifying it's, yeah for a backpacker it's your worst nightmare yeah and just to sort of let the listeners know as well this is a big case that the movie Wolf Creek was based on so um John Jarrett actually based his character on the killer yeah that's a terrifying movie if you haven't seen that and especially if you're not Australian it might not have been super big in other countries it I is... have a feeling it was but if you haven't seen it see it it's terrifying it's, yeah And it's based on a few of the cases here in Australia, well, loosely based, so it's definitely worth checking out. Joanne Lees and Peter Falconier both grew up in the British Midlands, more specifically Huddersfield, which is described as a large market town halfway between Leeds and Manchester. It's the 11th biggest town in the UK. Peter was born on the 20th of September 1972 to his Italian migrant father, Luciano, and his mother, Joan. He was one of four boys with his older brothers, Nick and Paul, and his younger brother, Mark. The family has been described as a lovely family by neighbours from the area. Joanne Lees was born on the 25th of September, 1973. She was initially raised by her single mum, Jenny, and had little contact with her biological father. She was very close to her mother. Jenny eventually remarried and Joanne embraced her stepdad and stepbrother with open arms. They lived together in a modest home. Reportedly, the area of Huddersfield is the type of area where generation after generation live. The area offers affordable housing with modest wages and entry-level jobs, which keeps the working class there. Joanne and Peter were different, though. They wanted to see the world. In 1996, Peter spotted Joanne at the local nightclub. He liked what he saw. He was attracted to her shiny black bob haircut, smooth complexion and blue eyes. As they got to know each other, she was attracted to his sweet, funny and courteous nature. Peter worked as a surveyor and Joanne worked for a travel agency. The two had big dreams to travel together. So they're sort of at that time in their life where they're young, they're looking for some sort of an adventure and it's actually as someone who's backpacked around Australia, you meet so many young people from Britain who are just out there just backpacking, just making, or actually just from Europe in general. Just living life. Yeah, and it's just so... You know, this could be anyone. Like, yeah. this is just, yeah, just hearing their story and just thinking about that, it's just, yeah. I'm guessing you can relate to it quite a lot. Yeah, I just met a lot of people their age and it's just really a sad ending because they really do 
work like this trip is a big thing for, yeah yeah a lot of people from Europe to come and backpack around Australia so I can just imagine that excitement that they must have had at this point according to many people the two were a great couple and were like best friends the personalities match well Peter was confident and outgoing and Joanne was reserved and supportive Pete treated her like she was on a pedestal and she was very devoted to their relationship after trying out working class life for a while they decided they were going to go away for the biggest trip yet, a year in Australia. Despite the fact that their parents were concerned about the two heading off that far abroad, the couple was very excited. They left the UK and headed to Nepal before heading to Singapore and then Thailand. Last minute, they decided to travel to Cambodia. While there, they had their money, traveller's checks and return airfares to Bangkok stolen. They decided that even though the trip had gotten off to a rough start, they would still continue on to Sydney. And at that point, they actually met another backpacker who helped them fund their flights to Bangkok. And then obviously they paid them back once they sorted out the money checks. But that's just kind, that's of, so how nice. the, that's just kind of how the backpacking world is. is like, it? That's why I'm just, that's why I'm relating to them. Like I can yeah. really, like this case really, yeah, it, it's, I can relate to this case. Like it's yeah. really just anyone, like backpackers have each other's backs. Like this is quite an unexpected Oh, this is just horrible. I feel like it's a whole world I've not exposed mm. to because I've never done any kind of travel. It is a like different that. world. Yeah. And you make sort of like the way I sort of think of it is you make like the best friends that you'll never see yeah. again. Like the people that I met traveling are literally when you're with them, it's yeah. everything. I yeah. would have given them, yeah, money to get to mm. the next location, but I wouldn't just give anyone money now. You know what it, you know what yeah. it is? On the 16th of January, 2001, the couple set off for Sydney thinking that the worst of their trip was behind them. They loved Sydney, which offered them everything that young people would want, sunshine, beaches and nightlife. They started with hostel accommodation before moving into rental share apartment in North Bondi. The apartment was neat, cheap and a short distance to the beach, perfect for the three to four months they were planning to stay in Sydney. Peter began a job fitting office furniture straight away. Joanne took a little longer to find her feet, but eventually was accepted for a position at a Dimmick's bookstore. Her manager at Dimmix described Joanne as a lovely girl who was shy but becoming more outgoing the more you knew her. Peter was also well-liked and even came into the bookstore after hours to help the staff do stock take. Sydney suited Joanne far more than she had anticipated and she wasn't sure she would be ready to leave when Pete was. She had become close to her friends she had made through the bookstore and loved organising social events with them, drinking and dancing the night away. She also became close to another man and did have a brief affair, although she felt incredibly guilty about it. And that's pretty normal. So as a backpacker, she obviously had a little fling and... And she's very... They're very young, yeah, you know. They're very young. Not that it's like we condone it, but at the same time, like, you know, I feel like people held this against her a lot more than they should have. As time goes on, yeah, you'll realise that this is something that was held against her. But real, like the reality of it is she had a little fling. She loves Pete. She was back travelling with Pete the next... They were moving on shortly. So. Yeah. Eventually it was time to move on and see the rest of Australia. Pete went out in search of a vehicle that would suit their needs and take them the distance. He found a couple selling an old orange VW combi van with a pop top. The van came fitted out with a fridge, gas cooker, sink, CD players and a full service history. Pete was so happy with his purchase, but Joanne didn't feel the same way about the bright orange combi. The couple set out from Sydney on the 25th of June 2001. Pete and Joanne stopped at Melbourne and then drove through Adelaide, stopping off wherever they pleased and sleeping in the combi. They would stop in the occasional campground that had full amenities so they could shower and use electrical products. 
They took turns driving while the other would lie in the back and read or take a nap. They stopped in Cooper Pedy for a couple of days where Joanne sent off a postcard to her mother. After they set off again, Pete realised the combi steering was pulling off to one side. They pulled in at Alice Springs where the town's mechanic told them that he wouldn't be able to fix the car for a couple of days. They decided to stay there and leave after the combi had been repaired. And have you been to these places? Mm, yeah. What are they like? So Coober is like a desert and it's extremely hot. And so pe- there's actually people's houses are like underground. Yeah. So it's like just like nothing else. Um, so that's a cool place. Most people will stop there, but it's not somewhere that most people would stay for very long. So they yeah. obviously pass through there. I'm surprised they only stayed in Alice for a few days. That's a pretty, that's like the centre of Australia. Uh, it's a pretty yeah. happening little rural town. So yeah, so Alice is ge- geographically the dead centre of point of Australia and is 1,500 kilometres from the nearest city. Pete and Joanne felt comfortable there as there was lots of accommodation, cute shops and cafes and also bars. There was live music every night and the people of the town were friendly. They decided that they would stay for the annual Alice Springs Camel Cup and head off after that. The Camel Cup is pretty much what it sounds like. Instead of horses, jockeys ride camels. It brings in locals and tourists alike and is a big day for the town of Alice Springs. Domesticated camels are brought in from different parts of the country and jockeys come from far and wide to take part. Joanne and Pete enjoyed their day at the Camel Cup before grabbing some red rooster and getting ready to leave. Little did the couple know that someone was watching them. He had his sights set on Joanne. This was not a backpacker or a friendly town local. This man had a criminal past and Joanne had not been his first target. Not long before this, two girls driving a white combi had also encountered this man. As they drove, they noticed a white ute pull up behind them. It then pulled up alongside of them, lingering before overtaking. They both noticed that the man appeared to be perving and leering at them as he drove alongside their van. The ute sped away, but as the girls drove over the top of the hill, they noticed that their man in the ute had pulled over to the side of the road and was smoking a cigarette. The sight of him disturbed the girls. Not long after they had passed him, the familiar ute came up behind them again before pulling up alongside the combi. Luckily for the women, at this point, their male friend in the back seat sat up. This seemed to put off the male that was following them in the ute. The man in the ute raised two fingers up to his head and jerked them as though he was firing a gun into his own head. He then drove off. The girls got his car rego. And obviously that would be quite scary. It's quite disturbing. These roads are pretty um, rural as well. You don't yeah. often see a lot of other cars. So to have something creepy happen on the open road yeah. would be very disturbing. Yeah. Right? The man watched Joanne climb into the combi van, but he wasn't in a rush to follow it. He knew that the combi would be slow and he'd be able to catch up later. So there was no urgency to get back into his white ute. Joanne was frustrated with how late they were leaving. She hated driving in the dark, knew they had a good five or six hours ahead of them before their next stop. As Pete read The Catcher in the Rye and Joanne listened to Scottish rock group Texas, the man who had spotted Joanne earlier followed a distance behind, not drawing attention to himself. He then sped up and quickly overtook the vehicle, speeding off ahead. The couple stopped at a tea tree roadhouse and stopped the combi to stretch their legs. They grabbed a couple of drinks and had a joint. They jumped back on the road after buying some snacks and using the restrooms. As they began to continue their drive, this time with Pete behind the wheel, they noticed two fires burning on the side of the road. 
Pete wanted to stop and put the fires out, but Joanne was disturbed by this and convinced him not to. And I would be probably scared of that as well. I don't think I'd stop. Especially the out there in the dis- like in the middle of nowhere. Mm, in the outback. Because mm. didn't they say like you barely run into anyone else on the road out there? It's pretty, it's, yeah, I, I would say you could easily drive for an hour before seeing another vehicle or even mm. far, far longer. Yeah. But that would be just like a sort of average. And you're so. not supposed to drive at night, are you? Um, it's sort of, it's not that you're not supposed to, it's kind of like a bit of an unwritten rule. So like the road, the road trains will often be driving at night. It's quite a dangerous time to drive. Um, also if you break down at night, you're not likely to have, it gets really cold, although it's really hot during the day, it's actually really cold during the night. So if you don't have correct sort of provisions and you have to break down at night, you could be in a fair bit of trouble. Um, so they just sort of, I think it's a more recommended than a you're not meant to, but yeah. Definitely, like, it's not, you know, you wouldn't drive at night. Like, yeah. It's very dark as well. Like, it's a really, yeah, it's dark. It's pitch black, basically. It's cold. Like, there's vast open roads. Yeah. Yeah. It was around 7.30 p.m. and they had just passed the Barrow Creek Roadhouse when they noticed headlights approaching the combi quickly from behind. Pete slowed the combi down a little so that the fast approaching car could get around easily. Instead of overtaking, the white ute pulled up alongside the combi. The man driving the ute looked to be around 40 to 45 years of age, according to Joanne. He had a grey moustache and had a dog in the passenger seat next to him. The man was pointing towards the back of the combi van and mouthing the words exhaust and sparks. Immediately, Pete wanted to pull over and check the van. Joanne wasn't so sure. She didn't trust the man and told Pete not to pull over. This would be a scary circumstance. Absolutely. And it's one of those things like either way, you know, if your car's breaking down and it's got sparks coming out of it, obviously you want to stop. Yeah. But then also the sight of like potentially a creepy looking man yeah. telling you to pull over, both circumstances could kind of end badly. So yeah, it is a tough, it's a bit of the one where you kind of like think, what would I do? Yeah. What do you reckon you'd do? Well, if I was in the frame of mind just thinking nothing's up, like if I had Joanne sitting next to me telling me, please don't pull over, I'd be instantly freaking out and not pulling over. <laughs> but if no one was sort of with me and everyone was on a positive mode, I reckon I'd be like, yeah, sweet, pull yeah. over and see what this guy's got to say. But if I was a little bit nervous or he freaked me out, I'd probably not pull over. Yeah, I can guarantee he'd freak me out. Yeah. I would not pull over 100%. Mm. Yeah. But so, the, other problem, the other thing is there's a lot of nice people in the outback. Like, I've met a lot of really helpful people. So there's probably, if they've been travelling for a while, they may have, like, a bit of an inner... A false oh, sense of security. Local, local Aussie helping me out. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. They're not all good, as we've covered many that are not in this podcast. Pete pulled the car over, and so did the man in the ute. He hopped out of the car to see what the man was talking about and Joanne slid over into the driver's seat so she could get a better view of what was going on. She saw Pete bending down, and it appeared that he was looking in the direction of the exhaust. She could hear the man talking and noted that the ute man told Pete that he had seen sparks. She heard Pete thank the man. Pete called out to Joanne to rev the engine, and she did. She looked into the rearview mirror and noticed the ute man staring at her. It made her feel very uncomfortable. Suddenly a loud crack rang out into the air. Initially, Joanne thought that it must have been the combi van backfiring, but as she turned around to look, she came face to face with Ute Man, who was pointing a gun directly at her. Terrified, she called out for Pete, but there was no response. Ute Man demanded that she turn the van's engine off and shoved her into the passenger seat of the combi. He pushed the revolver against her head and told her to put her hands behind her back 
which he then tied up with black electrical ties. He pulled her from the combi van and threw her down onto the ground. He then straddled her and grabbed her ankles, attempting to tie them together. Joanne fought back and the two struggled. Eventually, the man gave up on trying to tie up her ankles. Frantically, Joanne looked around for her boyfriend, but she couldn't see him. The man then punched her hard in the head and started to drag her towards his vehicle, which is like the most terrifying thing that could ever happen to you. Yeah. Ute man pushed Joanne into his vehicle and she looked around frantically for a way to get out. She thought maybe she could get out the driver's door, but the dog was sitting in her way. The man got into the car and pushed Joanne into the back of the ute. She suddenly felt like she was lying on a soft object, like a mattress. She rolled over and her eyes were drawn to a patch of light in the back of the ute. She heard the man walking around the back of the vehicle and screamed out for Pete. The man yelled at Joanne to shut up. Then she heard the sound of something large being dragged across the gravel. Joanne edged towards the light and found the edge of the utilities tray. This was her chance to escape. She rolled off the back of the ute and hit the ground. She ran for her life. She ran until she entered some scrub on the side of the highway. Her hands were still tied behind her. Despite falling over twice as she ran through the pitch black, moonless night, she found her way under a bush and curled up into a ball. So terrifying. Yes. I literally had anxiety just Mm. kind of reading about this stuff. It's the stuff of nightmares. Yeah, like you can really put yourself in her situation and just imagine how terrifying that would be. Especially like in that area, being mm. somewhere where the, you know there's no people around. Yeah, it's literally it's her pitch and him. black. Yeah, and as far as she knows, no one's coming for another eight yeah. hours. It's just, it just depends what's he going to do. Yeah. She's got no control here. Joanne tried to quiet her breathing and she heard the sound of a man's footsteps crunching over the gravel towards her. The footsteps got closer and closer as the man took out his torch and began shining it around the bushes. The torchlight got close, but never hit her directly. The man walked past her multiple times and she was sure he would find her at any second, but he didn't. And that was just pure luck. Absolutely. She she would have been so sure that he was going to find her as well. Yeah. Like, and just, she would have been terrified. Yeah. The poor thing. Joanne heard a door slam and a car engine start. She saw the Ute's headlights flash over the area where she was laying motionless. She was terrified. Was he trying to spot her? Then he drove away. Joanne remembered that she had some lip balm in her pocket and tried to use that to lubricate the cable ties so she could get them off. Then she heard footsteps walking across the gravel again. She froze as she heard the combi's engine start. The man had driven it away to hide it on a dirt track. Joanne lay there for hours and hours. It was cold and she was extremely frightened. Eventually she made the decision to get up and walk towards the road. She felt vulnerable and exposed. Suddenly she saw headlights approaching. She was in two minds about whether to try and attract the attention of oncoming vehicle. What if it was the ute man again? She watched and tried to figure out what type of vehicle was approaching. She realised it was a huge truck and probably wasn't the man. She waved her arms and ran out in front of the truck, desperately trying to get them to stop. It's literally your worst nightmare. It really is. Like... Being in this foreign place in the outback, freezing cold, some guys trying to do who knows what to you. Mm. Oh my God. And it's lucky it was a truck driver because I feel like if it was a regular car that had come across her, the people in the car could be like us. And actually like when you see a person in the middle of the road, I feel like if I saw a person in the middle Mm. of the road, I might jump to the conclusion that they were like a bad guy and not stop. I think for me, if they were cable tied, I would probably stop. 
Wouldn't you maybe think that like there was like a bunch of guys hiding in the bushes though and like it's a decoy to get you to pull over? I or am I just like way overreacting? I couldn't personally couldn't leave a cable tied girl in the bush. Yeah. In the outback. It's not really bush. I couldn't leave her there. You know? Like even yeah. if there was people coming to jump out, like it's the it's before mobile phones, it's two thousand and one. I mean mobile phones existed obviously. Yeah. It's not yeah, I don't think I could leave it. Yeah, I like to think that I'd do the right thing, mm. but if it was a dude, I hate to say, if it was a dude, I'd be more suspicious. But okay, she's a she's like a young little, like not little, but she's like a young, smallish girl. Like I'd yeah. be like, oh, I gotta get her. Yeah, it's a hard yeah. situation. At first she thought the truck was going to continue without stopping, but eventually it stopped about a kilometre down the road. She jogged after the truck and the driver hopped out of the vehicle and called out for her. She threw herself at the man hysterically and tried to tell him what had happened, pleading for help. Her car and her boyfriend were gone. Vince Miller and Rodney Adams were driving a huge road truck that night when they stumbled across the young woman waving them down in the deserted Stewart Highway. At first they were worried that they may have hit her. Luckily they hadn't. It was 12.45am when they pulled the terrified Joanne Lees into the truck and tried to calm her down long enough to figure out what had happened. On Joanne's insistence, they took her around the area for any trace of Pete, but they saw nothing. The truckies decided to take Joanne to the nearest open roadhouse to call the police. They approached the Barrow Creek Roadhouse, which they were surprised to see was open. Joanne was too scared to get out of the car. She was worried the ute man might be in there. One of the truckies went in to call the police for her while the other comforted Joanne. Police in that area were hard to get hold of and the truckie ended up just leaving a message on the police station answering machine. It wasn't until 4.20am that the police finally arrived at the Barrow Creek Roadhouse. They took Joanne's statements, photographed her injuries and examined her clothing. They found strands of dog hair on some of her clothes. Police asked the truckies to take them to the area where they found Joanne and they were able to locate it fairly easily. They found blood in the spot where the cars had been parked. They quickly closed down the Stewart Highway and put out alerts to be on the lookout for a white ute. Forensics searched for any sign of clues in the area. They didn't find much and the attacker was most likely long gone. Joanne was interviewed and put together a photo fit of the man who attacked her and Peter. As it turned out, the man had been seen that night after attacking the couple. The man had stopped at a Shell petrol station to get some fuel. When the police showed the photo fit to the station attendant, they recognised the man immediately. The petrol station attendants gathered the CCTV footage from that night and passed it over to the police. Roadblocks were set up on all the major highways leading into South Australia, Western Australia and Queensland. They were pulling over all cars matching Joanne's description. But the truth was this may have been done far too late. The police found the combi van abandoned down the dirt track near the scene of the attack. Forensics searched it and luminal testing revealed that there was some DNA from an unidentified male on the steering wheel and the gear stick. Blood was also found on Joanne's top and was also from an unidentified male. Joanne and Pete's families were notified of what had happened overseas and they were absolutely devastated. Not long after the news was broken, the postcard from Joanne in Happier Travel Times arrived, which is really sad. That is, yeah, really sad. Mm. The media swarmed around Joanne, trying to get the information out of her. She wasn't comfortable with this media attention and it wasn't long before the media and the public began to become harsh and critical towards this poor victim. People began to pick Joanne apart, although she was most likely putting her mental health first in her decision not to speak about what had happened. 
She was not giving the media exactly what they wanted. She was taking care of herself and not putting herself in a position she wasn't comfortable with. And obviously that's like she's been she's been through as a traumatic event like an extremely traumatic event it's almost like she was being treated as like a perpetrator rather than a victim the media just for like maybe forgot or just didn't care that they just wanted a story they just wanted a story and because she was acting what they would consider a little bit cold she's literally absolutely a victim as much like pete's a victim obviously absolutely and then she's obviously a victim too she's been through hell and they just export what did they want but it seems like it's like, I hate to sort of bring out the gender card and stuff, but women seem to be often so harshly judged on their behaviour. Like, it's like we expect women to act so soft and emotional whenever something even remotely bad happens. Mm. And when they don't act like that, uh, the public and the media are the first to judge. Yeah, she certainly got judged very harshly. And she still really to this day there's people who are, like, people doubt, fighting yeah, exactly. to, to have her convicted. People who think she's actually involved purely based on the fact that she didn't act the way they... would have liked her to act like there's absolutely no like solid evidence pointing in her direction it's purely because of her behavior and she has been and there's actually like evidence to show what she said happened happened like there's there they later found things that verify her story and she was yeah still treated like she was the the bad guy the bad guy and she's what she went through like we just went through what she went through that's everyone's worst nightmare like a young girl out here on her own like of course she's gonna be in shock yeah. and not able to just front the media and be all... Yeah, and by all reports, she did have quite a quiet, reserved personality. And I would say I, I'm a bit like that naturally, like in front of people I don't know too. So I can only imagine if I had been through something like that and suddenly had the media in my face, mm. I would be terrified. I would not want to... Yeah, I'm sure know, she's never been through anything like that either. So it's yeah. not like she's... No one's prepared for that. Yeah, exactly. Pete's brother Paul and father Luciano made their way over to Australia and became the spokespeople for the Falconio family and they were comfortable speaking out for Peter and held nothing against Joanne. Eventually, police were able to bring in Aboriginal tracker Teddy Egan Jangala, and I'm just going to apologise if I've said that wrong. It is um, an Indigenous name, so... Who is one of the most respected Aboriginal elders and the most in-demand trackers. Police hoped Teddy could shed some light on what had happened to Joanne. He was able to identify the exact bush Joanne had hidden and the area the man had walked. He also pointed out that the man had probably had an issue with one of his tyres. Joanne was really judged harshly during the weeks and months following Peter's disappearance. People began to refer to her stony face and pointed out that she didn't act the way they would expect a woman to act in that situation. She was compared to Lindy Chamberlain, who most people would probably know as as the woman who said, a dingo ate my baby, and Mm. people initially... She was convicted of murdering her child and then it actually ended up turning out that she didn't. A dingo did take her baby, but because she didn't act the way the media and the public expected, she was basically convicted. And this happened in a similar area. This happened Happened near Alice Springs. Yeah, near Uluru. Um, Yeah, so it is a similar kind of circumstance there. And, yeah, she was also a woman that didn't wear her emotions on her sleeve like Joanne. People also compared um, Joanne's behaviour to Luciano and Paul Falconio's behaviour, which I also think is unfair because, as we said before, they're all different people. Mm. So where those two were patient, polite and cooperative, Joanne obviously just didn't have the energy to be that at that point, and that's fair enough. She'd been through hell. I just think we need to acknowledge that it's okay for people to act differently under pressure and, yeah, it was quite disturbing to read the harsh things written about her. 
Another thing Joanne was judged on was the fact that she had had that brief affair in Sydney that we mentioned earlier and that she had still had a little bit of contact with that man. Yeah, I think so, they'd been emailing Yeah, so people a little bit. Jumped, jumped in on that as well. Um, and eventually Joanne returned to Sydney and worked at Dimmick's before ultimately making the decision to fly back home to England on the 19th of November 2001. Police offered a $250,000 reward for the right person to come forward with information about what had happened to Peter Falconio. They released the CCTV from the Shell service station and a couple of people instantly believed they recognised the man as Bradley Murdoch. He was questioned and added to the list of persons of interest, which at the time contained around 2,500 people. The investigation was seen as poorly done until a new officer was assigned to the case by the police commissioner. Colleen Gwynn is currently the Northern Territory Children's Commissioner, who at the time was a police officer working near Alice Springs. Although she was not completely confident about solving the case, she saw this as a great opportunity. Although she was shocked by the complexity of the case, she took the opportunity to read everything she could find out about the case, working day and night. Colleen put together a team of herself and another three officers who she believed had the right combination of qualities to solve the case and who were all familiar with the area. Colleen even went as far as being dropped at the spot where Joanne hid laying there for a period of time, trying to understand what Joanne had been through. She found the experience terrifying and ended up calling her team to come back and get her. She was starting to understand the horror of what Joanne had experienced. Colleen flew to the UK to meet with Joanne and sat with her for a 12-hour interview. She found Joanne to be extremely helpful with amazing recollection of what had happened, described with a lot of emotion. Joanne, who had no faith left in the Northern Territory Police, began to have her faith restored. Colleen also visited with the Falconios and promised that she would find out who killed their son. A man eventually contacted police and told them that he knew who committed the crime. The name came up again, Bradley Murdoch. This name became very familiar to police. They were able to get their hands on his DNA. Reportedly, this turned out to be a partial match to the blood spot on the gear stick of the combi van, and a full DNA match to some bloodstains that were on Joanne's T-shirt. They also found a hair tie wrapped around, um, I think, the gear stick of Murdoch's car, um, which was reported to be Joanne's. I think this that piece of evidence, they kind of blow it up to be this huge thing, but I think you can't really say, like, a black hair tie definitely... for sure is tied to Joanne. Yeah. So I did find that to be maybe a little bit less um, conclusive. So just a little bit about Bradley Murdoch. Um, just sort of in the lead up to this crime. So he was actually a drug runner. So he would run drugs from, I'm not exactly sure where, I believe it was somewhere in South Australia up through to Broome, which is up the top of Western Australia. And that's along that highway that runs all the way through the centre of Australia? No, so he would actually take back roads. He knew that road really well. So Ah. because he was running drugs, he would take the back roads he would also like regularly change the look of his vehicle so he was a pretty smart drug dealer like he, yeah. he did this for a while he did this for a living so he um yeah if he's if he probably once every I don't know how often but he would sort of change the look of his vehicle so if anyone had seen anything suspicious um he would he would have a different looking vehicle within weeks later so who knows whether Joanne Lees and Peter were even his first like Victims. victims like yeah. so he just he's not a good guy he had um a violent history as well so he was sort of a a violent man and child as well um so after that cctv footage was released his father actually called him at some point and said you were on tv 
and that obviously startled him and he began to act paranoid according to some of his friends. So he actually had a one friend in particular who was a 33-year-old woman um, and she was living in South Australia and her um, daughter, also, yeah, her 12-year-old daughter also lived with her and there was actually a rape charge at that point as well, so against that family. So he sort of... So he was actually charged with raping the 12-year-old girl, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, and I don't believe he was convicted. If okay. I, yeah, but it did come up in... They, there was a trial and Peter Falconio actually came up in the trial and he actually denied killing Peter Falconio but admitted to having one of his T-shirts. And didn't you say as well that um, it came up in evidence that he'd also tied um, the mum and the daughter up with the black cable tie that was very similar, if not the same, as what he'd tied up Joanne Lee's? Yeah, that's with? right. And he actually also had a friend who said he saw him making that same cable tie in his shed, but his friend's also not a very reputable guy and actually they ended up having a bit of a back and forward in the courtroom. Okay. So his friend sort of did um, actually testify in court um, about that cable tie that he saw. In the in the um, Peter Falconio case or in the rape case? In the Peter Falconio case. Yeah. And um, Bradley Murdoch actually got quite heated and sort of told him to fuck off and, yeah, so it was quite an in, intense moment of the trial. But, yeah, um, and that actually also comes up in the case that he's innocent. They sort of say, well, you're trusting this other thug, yeah. you know, yeah. and so they're sort of saying that... It's so, like his word against his yeah, word. Yeah, so they kind of use that. of them are great guys. So. Even though it's not his word against yeah. his word in my opinion, but that was that's definitely one of the – they sort of – yeah, there's a lot of different little things that they can pick out and that's another one that they use, that it's kind of – it's an, one guy's one bad guy's word versus another bad guy's yeah. word. So she was also – another sort of reason why some people say that Joanne is lying is that she – when she first like, – they say her story changed. So when she first identified the dog, she did identify it as a Dalmatian. I believe the Dalmatian, uh, the dog was actually a cross Dalmatian between... A blue healer cross Dalmatian, I think. It was, yeah. And then, so when she did, so her initial report, it was a Dalmatian. But when she was at that roadhouse and a lady came out and sort of started just to sort of, it was a lady who worked there was kind of being kind and just having a talk to her. And she was taking care of her and helping her wash up and like lending her clothes and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. And then, um, because obviously the police took her clothes because they needed to. And then she... um, uh, Joanne asked, what kind of dog is that? And the lady told her it's a blue healer. And that's when she realised that she had said Dalmatian, but actually the dog looked more like a blue healer than a Dalmatian. And but it was just, I think it was a different colour than the girl's dog. So it was all mm. very confusing, but she knew that it looked like that cross between the two dogs. Absolutely. And yeah. her recount of what the vehicle looked like, what the driver looked like and what the dog looked like was amazing for yeah. someone going through that kind of shock and that kind of like horrible scenario and I think it's fairly common for someone who's been through something so traumatic to like recall different details at different time Mm. and even just in your normal life just for us as like average people like you forget things and then you recall it later and go oh you know yeah I should have said that or this happened or you know and you kind of nobody's memory is perfect no especially when you're on the spot you've got all of a sudden you're boyfriend's gone she doesn't even know at this point is he dead is he alive what and then she's got the police and she's just been through this traumatic situation of course like Small details are going to come and go and change. Yeah. So at the end of um, Bradley Murdoch's trial, he was found guilty of murder. Uh, He's currently 11 years into his sentence. The Northern Territory have passed a law, so it's no body, no parole. So basically Bradley Murdoch cannot apply for parole. He would be eligible for parole in 2033, um, but obviously if he doesn't tell people where the body is or produce um, the body... He has to stay in prison. Yeah, then he has to stay in prison. 
which I think is a good law, but yeah. I think it's a good law in, in, unless the um, unless it's innocent. a wrongful conviction. Yeah, and then obviously they can never get out because yeah. And actually, in this case, there are like we sort of briefly mentioned, there are a lot of people who do um, doubt that Murdoch is guilty. So some people aren't convinced uh, just by Joanne's behaviour. So obviously we don't agree with these people and we don't judge Joanne for acting the way that she acted, um, but there are definitely people who um, do think that yeah. Joanne is guilty. Apparently there was a man who was also in the Alice Springs area on the night of the Camel camel Cup um, and he actually saw Joanne talking to another man who he thinks fits more with um, her... Um, Description. Yeah, photo fit and everything like that. And he's actually, actually one of like the main people speaking out thinking that Bradley Murdoch was not guilty. Interesting. Yeah, so there's like there's definitely people out there who strongly believe that he's innocent. Um, another thing was um, we watched this program where there was two men who are in a professional position. One is a um, a criminal lawyer who's actually been disbarred due to drug offences, and then um, there was another one. I'm not 100 percent sure what he did. But, I'm not sure what he was either. But um, they were both kind of professionals in their field. And they actually thought that it was more likely that um, the DNA had been transferred to Joanne at the Red Rooster, like as in Bradley, that he had had like an oozing cut or something. And as he'd touched the chair, he'd left his DNA. And then she'd sat down and the DNA had been transferred to her T-shirt. And they thought that was more likely than him actually having committed the crime. But a, a DNA specialist also spoke in that um, episode and said that if the DNA had come from like the chair or something like that, it would have... Um, shown up in a different pattern so she doesn't think that's likely so it seems like there's two different sides and um a lot of the sides maybe cherry pick the information that suits each side each side so yeah just also um I just wanted to commend Colleen Gwynn as well like I think if Colleen Gwynn hadn't come along and taken over this case I don't know that there would be the same result um she yeah did a really fantastic job and And if you see her talking about it you can see how passionate she is she's very passionate about it and she is very unhappy with the way Joanne was perceived before she kind of came into the case and spoke to her. And she was quite shocked when she spoke to Joanne how much she actually did believe Joanne because mm. such a poor pa- um, picture had been painted of her previous to that. I did just remember um, another reason why some people do doubt uh, the conviction. Um, so Colleen does state that there were people on her team, on her task force, that were actually that actually believed Joanne was guilty and she sort of thought they had clouded vision so she kind of cleared them off the task force um, and just sort of made sure she had people who were sort of on the same mission you know to find that who that guy that Joanne described to find that guy to find the driver of that ute to sort of get that DNA evidence back Um, so those people that we spoke of earlier those sort of professionals in their field think that that was very unprofessional and that she should have kept everyone on regardless of their views. That the different viewpoints may Mm. have actually helped have a more diverse range of opinions. So aside from that, I don't know whether I find that right or wrong, but aside from that, I think she just wanted her best team there who were going to get the job done. Thankfully for the Falconio family and Joanne Lees, there seems to be justice in the case of their beloved son and boyfriend, Peter Falconio. This is such a sad case and really paints a picture of how wrong things can go in the vast and expansive Australian outback. So if you're travelling through there, make sure you heed the warning signs and don't drive those long, lonely stretches of road after dark. Thank you for listening to episode 10 of the True Crime Sisters podcast. Again, all our links can be found in the description below. Drop us an email or message if you'd like to chat. Make sure you tune in later in the week for our Unsolved Australia mini-sodes. 
and True Crime Sisters episodes. Until then, please stay safe.